Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This particular language also does not have gendered pronouns, and so I express that by using she as the default pronoun. And that became, hands down, the thing everybody knew about the book. Hey, everybody. I'm Carl Franzen, the managing editor of Motherboard. And today we have a very special episode where Motherboard's editor-in-chief, Jason Kobler, and a number of other Motherboard editors got to speak with Anne Leckie, who's an award-winning science fiction author, best known for the Ancillary Justice series of books. If you're not familiar with these, you should definitely check them out. The novel that started this is about an artificial intelligence that exists in multiple bodies, including a spaceship and reanimated dead bodies. So it's really weird, out there stuff. And we spoke with Anne about everything from politics to tea, which is a big part of the books, to writing a novel where gender was ambiguous and how difficult that proved to be. So thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, I'm Jason Kebler from Radio Motherboard, and we have Anne Leckie, the Hugo Award-winning science fiction author of Ancillary Justice with us. Hi Anne, thanks for joining. We are going to talk to Anne about her books, The Future, Dystopias, Tea, all sorts of things. I also have Becky Ferreira. Hey! And Ben Sullivan, who we flew in from the UK just to talk about this. He's an Anne Leckie super fan and <laughs> our UK staff writer. Yeah, I also work at Motherboard. Yeah, he also works at, <laughs> yeah, we didn't fly in a random fan. But yeah, I guess you were telling us about your tea. Adagio.com, which you can buy regular ordinary tea, they also allow you to do custom blends. And it's sort of become a fun thing a number of people do where they'll make a blend inspired by their favorite television show or their favorite book, uh, which is really cool. And as soon as I saw that, there's dozens of them, I said, I have to make teas for my books. I just have to. I have to make Imperial Watch teas. And so, in fact, you can go to Adagio.com and look under Fandom Blends and under Eyes, Imperial Watch. There are like eight or nine Imperial Roch teas that I personally blended, and I've tried them all. So for people who have no idea what we're talking about, why are we talking about tea? Like, tea plays a big role in Ancillary Justice and the trilogy, right? Yeah, it plays a huge role. Partly accidentally, because I knew I wanted some kind of hot caffeinated drink, right? But I didn't want coffee. 
coffee is kind of like standard, ordinary. It turns up in a lot of futures. They'll be like, you know, this is our synthetic calf or whatever. Tea is sort of similar, but I actually like tea much better than coffee. And that's an advantage. And it's kind of different. So I said, well, it's a prop. But once I put it in there, it became something that the characters handled a lot, that was in a lot of scenes. And that allowed it to take on a lot of emotional freight and carry a lot of world building with it. And I was re- I really got into enjoying that. So like the second most famous thing about the books is all the tea in them. <laughs> right. Yeah. What is the first most famous thing? The first most famous thing is the pronouns. <laughs> Yeah, is the fact that uh, the narrator comes from a society that just does not care about gender differences at all. It's just not culturally important. It's not something that is really on their radar. And so, accordingly, this isn't actually true. There are there are languages existing on Earth that don't have gendered pronouns, but this particular language also does not have gendered pronouns. And so, I express that by using she as the default pronoun. And that became, hands down, the thing everybody knew about the book. At what point of the writing process did you make that decision? That was pretty late. I knew that I wanted the culture that didn't care about gender. And I have written two other novels in this setting that are in a drawer because they're utterly dreadful. (laughs) I'm sure some people would like to read them. I've heard people say, oh, you sure we can't read? No, no one is reading those (laughs) novels. And I assigned binary genders to the characters and used he and she. And I was like, this is not getting across the effect that I want. And so it was quite a while before I settled on a solution to that problem. Uh, And there are a number of possible solutions. They is actually perfectly grammatical. Don't believe anybody who tells you that it's not grammatical, because it totally is. But it did feel funny, and it's a little odd when some of your characters have dozens of bodies. It introduces a kind of an ambiguity that wasn't going to be helpful. There are a number of more recently devised pronouns to solve similar problems, and none of them felt familiar enough to me. And I actually wrote a short story using all he, and I was really not happy with that, really not happy with it at all. And uh, eventually I said, well, what if I just use she? And at first it felt really weird and I didn't like it. But I said, well, I'll keep going because what's the worst? I'd just delete it. But the further in I got, the more I liked the effect because it showed to me how much I assumed that masculine was the default. And she was sort of hitting me in the face every time and making me sort of notice it and notice my own kind of preconceptions. And I said, no, I really like that effect the more I do it. So, But it was pretty late. It was pretty late. The first time I started reading Anthony Justice, I had to keep reading the first few pages again and again because... The idea of not having a gender assigned to, um, I think it was Cy Varden, when, when, when one of the characters is lying on the ice, and I couldn't picture her gender in my head, and that I was re- having real problems with this because it's such a shock not to be able to picture something. And then after a while, you kind of get used to it, and, and uh, you see past yeah, and having isn't it to interesting imagine the gender. That particular in the head. effect, because I had the, I wrote the first several chapters assigning binary genders to the characters, and then I went back and smoothed it over and the way I saw the characters changed very dramatically but I think what I think is really interesting is like somebody will say oh I had trouble picturing the characters because there was no gender specified and I thought to myself well that's interesting because even if I didn't describe the characters the readers would still feel that I had described them more by assigning them a gender which is super interesting to me because really there's no reason why saying someone is he would give you a real idea of what they look like. And yet, as a reader, I know I do, I feel like 
oh, I have a firm idea what they look like, but how could I possibly? And that I found that really super interesting as how strong that was. Yeah, yeah, that framing device was something that I also in the beginning of the book, it was just interesting to figure that out. And it also made me much more hyper aware of context clues about gender that often were not correct. You know, once you are, have this completely she pronoun everywhere, then you want to, my brain anyway, wanted to search every single character to find a clue as fast as possible, which almost makes you hyper aware of uh, traditional like gender Except stereotypes. That, right. In Except the end, none don't. of those clues mean anything. No, right? exactly. Because yeah. they're just yeah. the people they are, right? Yeah. I thought that was really interesting, a way to like almost project the problem even even further by using the she. So yeah. There have been science fiction and space opera, uh, you know, films and books in the past that have used sort of a, a genderless like clone sort of system where it's like. Uh, they use it to get rid of individuality. Was that something that you wanted to do? I mean, I, I don't think so. No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. I think I've seen a few folks who haven't read the book, assuming that that's what I was going for, but it's not. I was more, uh, once once I did that, once I put the she in there, I was more intrigued by the way it completely did not erase individuality, that individuality wasn't based on somebody's assigned gender, that it was... Uh, you know, something much more deep than that. Uh, that was something I really found super interesting. But you're right, that's that's a stock way of, oh, everybody's gray and everybody's dressed in white jumpsuits and, yeah. I, mean, I guess the, the overarching plot line is almost about Breck finding her individuality and, uh, yeah, gender becomes not even a... Yeah, gender's not an issue yeah, in that no, individuality, absolutely. yeah. So tell us about your new book because you, you were working on a new novel that takes place in the same universe, right? Yes, yes. I'm not sure how much I can say just yet, but I can say it is in the same universe. It's set probably a couple of years after the third book in the trilogy. It's outside of Roch space, so it's away, away, a completely different society, different set of characters. But it does sort of tie in. I do some work to make sure folks know where it fits into the chronology in the universe. And I'm really kind of excited about it. It should be pretty cool. Yeah. So I must admit, I'm new to the trilogy. Uh, I'm making my way through it now, but it feels very political to me, like in a, a political book. I mean, it, A, is it a political book? And B, this new book that you're working on, considering the times we're in, is it more intentionally political or, or is that ascribing too much? That's a really interesting set of questions. Um, first of all, I actually don't think it's possible to not have a political book. I think in the end, all stories are political, even, you know, C. Jane Run it, it has a set of assumptions behind it about how the world ought to be and how things are uh, that are ultimately political. Um, and But I, I have to say, when I sat down to write Ancillary Justice, uh, I was working with a lot of space opera tropes that I really love, but in order to stay interested, to make it something that was really going to keep me working on it, I was looking at where those came from and what the implications were and trying to build up a story that would really stand up. And those tropes have a political history. They have a sort of a background that's really kind of appalling, actually. And it was hard for me to ignore that going forward. I'm like, I can't just write a straightforward Galactic Empire invader story without acknowledging what these plot elements mean. And so that ended up informing the story. And at some point, I, once I started using she, I was like, you know, this is going to come across as a 100% political feminist. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? I am a feminist. And so I might as well just write the story. 
I'm just going to cut loose and do it, right? So uh, ultimately, it was very political. But I didn't sit down to say, I'm going to write a political story. I sat down to say, I'm going to blow up a bunch of spaceships, right? Right. (laughs) Because who doesn't like exploding spaceships? Yeah. The new book, I actually was very fortunate to have mostly finished before the election. Fortunate and unfortunate. Fortunate in that then I was derailed by a bunch of other stuff, but I wasn't still writing. Unfortunate in that it doesn't actually take a lot of that stuff into account, but there were some things about the ending. In fact, there was a final chapter that I ended up having to slice off because I could not stomach it anymore, considering current events. Uh, and I might, I don't know, I haven't said this to Ellen, uh, who's, who does publicity. Yes, tell us everything. Uh, no, I, I might actually save that. I The way I work, I don't usually have a lot of deleted scenes because it's just not the way my process is. But this is something that actually could be a deleted scene that so that some months later when I'm feeling much more comfortable about this, <laughs> about that kind of a chapter, then maybe I can say, oh, you know, folks, here's... A special bonus. Here's my deleted last chapter that I took off because I couldn't stand a, an election scene anymore. Right. It, it had to go. Yeah. So when I watch Donald Trump talk and during the election, when I watch him talk, I often find myself wondering, who is he talking to and what is this reality that he's telling us? Like, for instance, you know, immigrants are pouring into our borders, whereas the reality is they're leaving. The economy is very bad, whereas you know the economy is getting better terrorist, you're very unlikely to get killed by a terrorist. It feels like he is spouting a dystopian fiction. Like, it feels very much like he has painted this picture that is not quite reality, or blown up parts of reality that are, you know, aren't you know what I'm saying. I know exactly um, yeah. what you're so, saying. I mean, yeah. do, you, hey, do you agree with that, and have you thought of that? Like, is Donald Trump telling us a, a fiction? So, my personal theory on that is that he is saying what has been fed to him. I think that there's been a whole set of, the whole stream of media that has been trying to feed to the citizens of this country exactly those stories for ages. Immigrants are taking all of our jobs. Crime is on the increase. You know, uh, crime isn't on the increase. It's been on the decrease for our murder rate is the lowest it's been in, what, 50 years, right? But uh, there are media outlets that would prefer that particularly white folks uh, are very head up and worried about these things because it's easier to blame the people of color and the poor people who are surrounding you for your problems than it is to have them turn around and blame the folks in power. And I think as time goes by, it becomes clearer and clearer that uh, Trump gets all of it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...information from a couple of media outlets and implicitly believes what they say. Uh, and so I think he's just sort of spouting exactly... So it's, it's almost become like a feedback loop, right? He's talking to the audience of those media outlets. He is the audience of those media outlets. And he's feeding back into them, and it's just cycling around that way. Is there a dystopian feel to this narrative to you, though? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the whole whole civilization is crumbling. We're living in this post-apocalyptic world where things used to be wonderful, but now everything is crime-ridden and, and, uh, you know, strangers who are 
we don't even know how human they are are wandering around breaking windows and ruining things for us and we're you know camped out in the malls trying to fight them off thing absolutely yeah what do you think the role is of science fiction to a warn about this type of rhetoric and government and also to comment on it that's i think that's a complicated issue because as i said i believe that all art is political and i think narrative is particularly powerful i think that actually narrative is a basic mode of human thought it's how we analyze things around us we put it together into a narrative and so the stories that we consume end up dictating how we organize the information that comes into us so it becomes super important like what kind of stories people write but i'm also really hesitant to say that any writer ought to write a certain kind of story so usually what i say is that a writer ought to be aware of how dangerous and powerful narrative is and be very conscious of what things the writer believes that are making their way into the text so that whatever it is that text is saying, it isn't something that they then look back and say, oh, I didn't want to put that out into the world, right? So while I would, I would love to be able to say, well, people should fight injustice the way that I want them to fight injustice, I'm very hesitant to say that because I think that ends up causing as many problems as... Right. Well, Ancillary Justice was your first book, and as you said, it, it ended up being this statement or people took it that way. Were you prepared for that? And were there things that were taken in ways you maybe weren't expecting them to, or were you expecting that sort of reception? I was really surprised. I actually thought the book was unsalable. I thought that there was no way that an editor would buy that book. But I wrote it anyway, because when you're a writer, that's what you do. You write your stuff, you send it out, there are no guarantees, right? And I said, I'm not going to spend all this time and have something that I don't really love. So I was, first of all, super surprised that any publisher wanted to buy it to begin with. And then I have to admit, the publisher purchased it, and I was like, oh, I feel so bad for them because (laughs) nobody's going to buy this book. (laughs) And then I was super shocked at the reaction, which was so positive. And not just from, I mean, there were folks who are like, well, this person's going to like that book. And of course, that person did like the book. But then somebody else, I'd be like, really? You liked it? Really? (laughs) What do you think that says about today's sort of sci-fi readership that you yourself thought is unsellable? I mean, yeah, that's people have changed. Sci-fi's changed a little bit, a little bit. Um, I think part of why I thought it wouldn't sell was because there there is a very real problem, not just in sci-fi but in society generally, where uh, women uh, producing things tend to have a harder time getting them. So you, not as many women's books are going to get reviewed in the big review things and sell as much or have as, as nice a reputation. And this was a very distinctly feminist work. And I said, well, that, you know, here I am just writing a space opera. Nobody's looking for a super feminist space opera, you know. And to some extent, things haven't necessarily changed. But at the same time, I think knowing that that's a problem did kind of pull back my expectations, maybe more than it needed to. And that's something I think about a lot because that's a conversation that's going on uh, when you say, well, you know, uh, women and people of color and people who are LGBT have a really hard time selling their own narratives to major markets or just generally. And that's a real true thing. But at the same time, I've talked to people who have said, well, there's no point in my sending it to a major publisher because I just don't have a chance. And I think, well, on the one hand, I know what you're saying. And that comes from a place of very true information. On the other hand, send it to the real the major publisher because you never know what yeah. you're going to lose, right? I mean, on, on that theme, do you have any tips for for uh, you know women writers? 
Not not in specific. I think for women writers and for writers generally is write the thing that is really you, that you really want to write. I think especially young science fiction writers get a lot of advice about, oh, this sort of thing is marketable and this sort of thing isn't and you should aim it like this because editors will like it. And I would say ignore all of that. Make your stuff as good as you can make it, but write the thing that's your story because there are no guarantees. You can spend all that time writing the most commercial thing that's calculated to, to hit and never sell it. But the thing you have control over is you can write the thing that's the best you can write it and that it's yours. And in the end, even if it doesn't sell, you know you have something that you're proud of. And it is a problem for women writers feeling like you can't just write your own story because you have to pitch it to... I know several writers who grew up saying, well, I learned to write like a guy Mm. to sell. And I would say, let's just flood the freaking markets with stuff that's ours, right? Instead of just having editors only learn how to read stuff that's written in this particular way. Right. Should we move on to talk a little bit about technology? Obviously, we're motherboard. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, our core audience are interested in science and technology. So artificial intelligence plays quite, quite a large role in, in the trilogy, per se, I guess. It's like a super surveillance state, uh, the ships and, and the ancillaries are always watching what the humans are up to. So what are your opinions on devices like Amazon's Echo or Google Home sort of coming into the market? I feel kind of ambivalent about that. On the one hand, there are actually some positive aspects to that kind of super surveillance. Assuming a completely benevolent overlord, right? It's really fabulous to be able to say, if I was feeling it in the hotel room this morning, hey, Google, what's the temperature outside? Right. I can't do that in the hotel room. And I was like, but... Do you have a Google, Google I, Home? I do. And I'm like, what? I have to pick up my phone and, and <laughs> click on the weather? I can't just ask? And that's really super convenient. On the other hand, I'm not sure I like the idea that it's always listening, right? That's, that's a little bit yeah. scary. It's yeah. interesting that artificial intelligence has this creep factor, though. And I mean that not in like a creepy sense, but like we get used to it very quickly. It's funny that you yeah. have grown so used to your Google Home that it seems like people are willing to sort of give up any semblance of privacy in exchange for convenience. Well, and I think, too, when the giving up the privacy isn't visible and isn't causing an urgent problem, I think we react much more strongly to things that are imminent problems. And when the Google Home invasion of privacy is it's just sitting there listening, and the only thing that results from it is it tells us what the weather is every morning, or it tells me when my tea is ready, right, which is like the two things I use the Google Home for, right? (laughs) Then it doesn't feel like there's any... You don't feel like you're giving anything up. You don't feel like you're giving anything up. But in fact, you are, right? Because there it is. If somebody could come in and listen, if if Google wanted to be totally evil and listen to, to me talk to my husband about what's for dinner that right. night. Well, I feel like the flip side, too, in ancillary justice is just the idea of um, remembering having a panopticon-like presence, which is actually very appealing because this idea that you could see and experience through multiple different bodies, um, you know, is... Uh, it's kind of awesome. and Yeah, yeah. And, and from the human officer's point of view, of course, the ship knows everything that that officer needs, mm-hmm. if, especially if the ship likes you, right? You don't even have to think it's, if what you need is right there because it knows that's what you want. That's super appealing, right? That's the appeal of having, like, the ultimate servant, which is kind of creepy in its own way, right? I think one of the things we forget, because we don't have servants, most of us, you lose a lot of privacy when you have servants in your home, right? Servants are actually related to you in a very intimate way that is, in fact, kind of creepy and unsettling to most of us. But it's that same kind of thing. But they don't have any kind of power. Right. And I guess that's the next goal for 
companies like Amazon and Google, I mean, having a smart fridge and then your, your milk's showing up at your front door before you've even thought about ordering yes. it. It's, it's uh, seamlessness. Yeah. Yeah. Let's ask some, um, some reader questions. Yeah. There are some, yeah. You've answered a few of them already, but uh, we've got a few. One of them is, how did you form the religious traditions of the Ratch Empire? Oh. And how did it evolve through the writing of the books? Basically, I went up and down the anthropology and history shelves of local libraries. I'm lucky to live near like two or three different universities and I can just go to the libraries there and pulled out shiny stuff that I liked and kind of put it together in a way that fit. And that did evolve over time because I would start very basic, like with the tea, I'd just say, okay, casting omens. But then I would need a scene where I talked about that, so then I'd have to work out that detail. And so as it went on, it got more layered and, and more detailed. But that's that's actually one of the most fun parts of doing that kind of thing is just being able to read about so many different things and then say, oh, I like that. Oh, that detail will fit really well in here or that would match here really well. That was a lot of fun. Right. And uh, another question, what influenced the Ratch culture? Was it Rome? Why benefit justice and propriety? It definitely was Rome, among other things. But Rome was definitely a base template. I sort of took a lot of basic things from that and then layered a number of other things on top because I didn't want to just do Rome, right? Space Rome has been done yeah. like many times. Uh, but Space Rome has been done many times because it's such a good model for exactly. And because the Roman Empire is still very influential on us today, which was something I didn't realize until I had done more looking at it. Why benefit justice Why and benefit justice and propriety? I don't know. I'm not sure where that came from. That was really early world building, and I think I was just throwing stuff out on the page, and that stuck. I liked yeah. it. I mean, I guess a question from myself, which links to this, is the uh, Ratch Empire good or bad? Because I kind of have the same problems with uh, in Banks's culture. It, I mean, they think they're doing a good thing, they're killing aliens... I mean, it's it's hard to, to... But their motives are so good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's an empire. Right. Empires are complicated, right? They ruin lots of people's lives. They destroy other cultures. Um, they also produce amazing technology and amazing cultural stuff. I'm not generally pro-empire, <laughs> right? generally speaking. Uh, but it's hard to say that any human institution is all good or all bad. It's difficult. It's rare when that happens. Yeah. Right? Actually, I would be interested in what kind of stuff you're interested in in terms of space exploration and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, hugely influential in your book. Do you have particular things that you'd like to see done? Oh, you know, I would really love to see that Mars colony. That's probably a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't help it. You know, yeah. I, I grew up when they were doing moonshots and all this. And like, I, I want us to be out there in spacesuits, mining asteroids, and, mm. and taking generation ships to Alpha Centauri. And, you know, and boy, a lot of that's really super unlikely. But it would be super awesome. Yeah. When you look at our current commercial space programs and obviously what we're doing with NASA, what excites you most? Is there anything to get excited about in the near near term? I'm, I'm actually kind of intrigued by the rise of non-military attempts to get into orbit. I like the idea of a civilian project to do that. Uh, I feel a little ambivalent about big corporations then controlling the access, which maybe isn't that different from the military in some ways. But I do kind of like that, that it's opening up, that it's not just... Uh, and so I'm hoping that that becomes more reliable and more more like, you know, you could have multiple folks trying to get passage. That would be really awesome, but I'm not sure that's actually going to happen yeah. anytime soon. All right, that was Anne Leckie on Radio Motherboard with Motherboard's editor-in-chief Jason Kobler. 
and UK editor Ben Sullivan and writer Becky Ferreira. If you want to learn more about Anne Leckie, you can find her at annelecky.com. You can read an excerpt from her new novel up on Motherboard Now and watch the Facebook Live of this interview there as well. Big shout out to our editor and producer, Tim Barnes. Please subscribe to Radio Motherboard on Apple Podcasts. For everything science, sci-fi, tech, check out motherboard.tv. Thanks. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 